to the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today's program is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers on the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Well, today I'd like to introduce Salvador Ramirez, Doctor of Plant Health and a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Nebraska. And also joining us today is Fernanda Krupek, agronomy graduate research assistant also at the University of Nebraska. Sal and Fernanda will be discussing soil quality management versus quality soil management. Welcome to the podcast, Sal and Fernanda. Thank you, happy to be here. Yeah, thank you, looking forward to the discussion. So to get us started, uh, would you please both uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves? Great. So I uh, completed the Doctor of Plant Health degree at UNL in 2019. I like to take this chance to plug in my program because the DPH isn't a traditional doctoral degree. The Doctor of Plant Health is an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, professional doctoral degree, which aims to train graduates with the systems thinking and the systems level integration of soil science, plant pathology, entomology, weed science, and plant science. Furthermore, I just completed my PhD with Dr. Ray Driver at UNL, and for my PhD, I focused on assessing the impact of common management strategies in eastern Nebraska on soil microbial biomass, microbial community structure, and microbial activity. I'd like to point out that for the Dr. Plant Health, I, uh, I summarized the history of soil quality and soil health, and I focused on the debates that were had within the soil science community during the late 1990s and early 2000s about how to define and apply soil quality. So many of my responses today to your questions will reflect the history of these concepts, not necessarily what we're doing today, but I'm hoping that uh, I can provide a little bit of that historical context while Fernanda can provide some of the new and exciting news on soil quality specifically with cover crops. Fantastic. Fernanda? Yeah, so I'm currently pursuing my PhD degree at UNL and the Resilient Cropping Systems Lab under the supervision of Dr. Andrea Beige. And before joining UNL, I received my master's degree from Universal Florida, where I worked with a project that combined field crop management and post-harvest crop physiology. And in fact, I'm originally from Brazil, so I've earned my bachelor's degree in agronomy at the University of Sao Paulo. And my interest for agricultural sciences starts as crop production because I grew up on my uncle's corn and soybean farming operation. Basically here at UNL, I'm part of a statewide project that combines on-farm experiments with a continuum of practices, let's say to a transition to more complex or ecologically intensified cropping systems. And these on-farm experiments were designed to provide farmers the opportunity to research different management practices that promote soil health. So for example, Different cover crop management strategies, let's say species selection, cover crop planting and termination dates, also grazing opportunities are being explored in this project. 
So when I started to look for PhD opportunities, my main goal uh, as a future researcher is, you know, to be involved in interdisciplinary projects that addresses the whole system and not just one piece of the pie. And I believe that cover crops and soil health have been playing a crucial role on this systems level approach. So glad to be working on this, this project. Fantastic. So to, to get us started, what is the first major difference between soil quality management and quality soil management? Two, two different things there. They, uh, they are two different things, but they're also kind of a, a phrase in, in, in the history of soil quality. So this juxtaposition, that phrase, soil quality management versus quality soil management, that arose during the uh, soil quality and soil health debates of the late 1990s and early 2000s. This debate centered around how to define soil quality, uh, what were appropriate indicators of soil quality, how to integrate those indicators, and then finally how to interpret them. So that phrase, soil quality management versus quality management, is actually in the title of one of the papers authored by Robert Soika, Dan Upchurch, and I don't know if you've heard of this last author, Norman Borlaug. And in that paper, they challenge soil quality as a concept and describe the several flaws in how it's defined. The full title of that paper was, and sorry to repeat this for a third time, Quality Soil Management or Soil Quality Management, Performance versus Semantics. And I think that that really highlights, to answer your question, the difference. Soika and others argued that soil quality management was a broad, overarching, philosophically flawed method of indexing the status of soil, while in comparison, quality soil management was a targeted, focused method centered around site-specific soil properties, which uh, wasn't really concerned with how to define soil quality. So the easiest way that I can really summarize these debates that were had in the early 2000s um, and this wouldn't wouldn't be giving it enough credit to the complexity of these disagreements. But the easiest way that I can summarize it is that soil quality was basically a repackaging of ideas that were already understood within the soil science community. Those ideas and those tenants that are very important are that one, soil is a depletable resource, two, management affects soil. And three, it's important to assess not only chemical soil properties, but physical and biological ones as well. So soil quality was just basically these ideas with a broader definition. And so the soil science community couldn't really agree on them and they kind of still don't right now. Well, that, that I was gonna say that leads me to my very next question, which is how do you suggest then that growers define soil quality when that, that definition can be so different depending on a farmer's goals and the soil type on their farm. Correct. So one of the most accepted soil quality definitions is one of the earlier ones that was defined by Duran and Parkin in 1994. And that definition is the capacity of soil to function within ecosystem boundaries to sustain biological productivity, maintain environmental quality, and promote plant and animal health. Uh, many soil scientists at the time and many today have several problems with this definition. Uh, one major problem is that the definition doesn't really specify soil use, which is an important factor of, of, of soil function. It does the opposite, actually, by stating the capacity of soil to function within ecosystem boundaries. So now one would have to define what those boundaries are. Um, comparatively, a, 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 a popular definition for soil health is the capacity, the continued capacity of soil to function as a vital living ecosystem that sustains plant, animals, and humans. And so those definitions, soil quality and soil health, they share some, some broad similarities. 
So like you said, soil quality and soil health currently mean, mean different things to different groups of people. And that's, that's okay. And um, now this is my opinion, not really the history. This is my opinion that it's okay that scientists and academia continue to strive for a better definition. So unfortunately, I'm not going to suggest another definition or a new one. And I'm not going to suggest to farmers how to define soil quality. Um, However, I, I feel like when growers use the term, especially when they're communicating with me, they're saying the things that we all truly agree on. Once again, that soil is an important and depletable resource, that management can maintain, deplete, or even enhance these resources, and um, that they generally mention that it's important to measure physical, chemical, and biological properties. So as long as we, we kind of agree on those things, um, as long as we continue to manage our soils with these simple truths, um, that's, that's great. Um, this, of course, wasn't new in the early 2000s, and it isn't new today. I'm really glad that you mentioned that measurement part of it, because uh, what would be some good strategies for growers to measure soil quality in their operations? Yeah, so like uh, Saul mentioned, uh, soil quality indicators then can be classified as physical, chemical, or biological and although all these, you know, categories, they are not clearly delineated because many properties, they are a reflection of multiple process. Let's say, for example, soil aggregation is a result of chemical parameters, for example, organic matter content, also mineral type and biological activities. The same way, if you think about plant available phosphate, it also falls under the chemical indicators, but is largely as a result of biological process of microbial mineralization and plant uptake. So all this classification that we have today, the chemical, physical, and biological, in many aspects is like less a reflection of causality, for example, as plant availability of phosphate is as a result of biological processes, then an object of impurity. For instance, phosphate is a chemical indicator and that can be readily analyzed. So um, back to the question to be used as a soil quality indicator, a parameter should satisfy several criteria. So one of them is to be relevant to soil quality, right? It's ecosystems, function and services. Second, it's important to be sensitive by changing um, quickly without being reflective of merely short-term oscillations that we see in the field. Third, it needs to be practical by being conducted uh, cheaply and with a short turnaround time. And fourth, it needs to be informative for management. So I would say approximately half of the indicators that we currently use in more than 20% of the soil quality schemes that we have, those that comprise a mixture of uh, declaring themselves to be soil quality or soil healthy schemes, they satisfy these four criteria that I mentioned, but some important indicators do not. So let's, for example, talk about total organic carbon. That satisfies three criteria, but typically does not change very quickly. It's not very sensitive. So that requires additional indicators, for example, uh, organic carbon fractions that are more sensitive to change. Uh, we can also think about other indicators, for example, soil texture or soil depth that do not change uh, readily. So it cannot be uh, easily managed, right? In other words, it's not informative on that criteria that I mentioned. But those properties, they are highly relevant for soil quality and it still require that time intensive analysis or in-field management. Uh, so, 
even though all these uh, unmanageable indicators, like I mentioned, the soil texture provide this context for the soil health and can be understood as mapping soil potential or capability. Uh, without those measurements, uh, we cannot, management attributes cannot be understood. So basically, uh, based on personal experience, some considerations I would say on best strategies for measuring soil quality is first, select indicators that satisfy most of the criteria I mentioned before, being relevant, being sensitive, being practical, and being formative. Second, monitor uh, the soil quality over a long time period, preferably I would say a minimum of five years, because soil quality is a long-term improvement process, right? Third, uh, try to be consistent in the sampling, uh, including you know, sampling at the same time of the year, the same cash crop, the same relative uh, row position, the same depth, and the same lab. So this also means that the sampling, uh, the same locations in the field for subsequent years. Uh, another important consideration I would say is to acknowledge the in-field spatial variability if you are measuring soil quality in large scale field production, let's say hundreds of acres. And the last point I'd like to make here is in terms of the management comparisons. When you're looking at soil quality, focus on large management changes. So let's say you are more likely to be able to see differences if you make larger management changes rather than a small change. So for example, if you have a field that has been conventional tilled or even had problems with erosion, and now you are transitioned to a no-till and cover crop, it will be a good choice for monitoring over time. So soil quality tests, they are less likely to detect relatively small change, for example, adding a cover crop to an already uh, long-term no-till system. So there are some studies showing uh, several differences in soil quality indicators between teal treatments without cover crop compared to a no-till plus cover crop. But when we look at those small chains, for example, we have seen no statistical differences when the only difference in treatment is adding a cover crop to a long-term no-till system. That's fascinating uh, that you mentioned that, Fernanda because the advice that many long-term cover crop users typically give is to start small rather than making large changes. So um, practically speaking, how can, the, how can growers successfully make some of those changes to soil quality indicators uh, in a method that doesn't heavily impact their bottom line? Right, so I would say first try to uh, consider restricting, you know, the number and types of measurements that you made in the field uh, and focus on a few key measurements uh, in very well-defined areas of your field. Because when you talk about soil quality, we are talking about different chemical, physical, and biological indicators. So that's why it's important instead of measuring a lot of things, focus on some key measurements and that will not racking up large expenses. So uh, although this kind of conflicts with the idea of taking many measurements, like I said, many soil quality indicators, it might be better to select a few measurements and take more samples to characterize your field. So some of the properties that falls under the criteria of being, you know, easy, reliable, quick, and cheap uh, are soil organic carbon and nitrogen fractions. We also have aggregate stability and water infiltration. 
Fantastic. So it's one thing for growers to get all of this data. How can they go about interpreting that data in a meaningful way to then apply it and apply any changes to their operation? Are there are there tools available to help with that interpretation? Yeah, that's a good question and one of the big, biggest challenge we face nowadays. So when we talk about soil health assessment, uh, that should be, let's say, a wellness exam. For example, if you compare for human health, that finds, you know, we want to find areas of the field that need attention and provides us an overall health rating. So in some way, a soil health test, they should identify areas that need improvement along with an overall score. There are some uh, tests that include an overall score. So um, I would say soil health tests should provide uh, consistent, reliable results, which means being reproductible. Uh, they should measure important attributes of soil functions that respond relatively quickly to management. And ideally, those attributes have no kind of values to indicate good or poor for each function. So there are many commercial tests. For example, I would mention some names here that you might be familiar with, the Cornell Comprehensive Assessment of Soil Health. We also have the Haney Soil Health Nutrient 2. So those tests, they kind of attempt to assess soil health from soil collected in the field. And they are also in, there are also infused some soil health assessments that use various soil health uh, test kits, kits, sensory observations, or field soil property management measurements. Those soil health tests, they measure various attributes of biology, chemistry, fertility, and physical properties, and they are commercially available for farmers. Um, but another example that we have of commercial tests um, is the phospholipidic fatty acid, the pill PLFA that Sal has been working on that and he can give us some um, thoughts on that too. And there is also the earth uh, form soil food web biology. And those tests, they focus entirely on soil biological properties. Uh, I would say these two tests, they differ primarily on the methods that they use to assess groups of microorganisms. But when you evaluate the results of biological tests, it's important to remember there is no standard threshold for any biological group. And that's kind of a challenge when we try to interpret those results. So in general, you want to see a higher overall microbial biomass in terms of numbers, because this indicates a larger microbial community, right? But it is also valuable to look at some specific groups to, of microbial groups to evaluate how well the microbial community may perform its role in the soil function. So the overall, I would say, my take-home message is that soil health indicators, they should be interpreted with caution because many soil health tests, particularly those focused on soil biology, they are highly variable. So even if we see large differences over time, I would say don't jump to the conclusion about whether your soil is health, health is increasing or decrease because of the highly variable nature of those tests, right? So it will be difficult to determine if those differences are real or just due to random error. So you will need uh, tested over multiple years to determine if this trend is kind of cons consistent or not. That leads me right into my next question is why why is the nature of soil such that it takes so long for 
real change to be made in the soil and, and to be uh, of a level that can be detected by some of these tests? Uh, yeah, first we need to understand how the soil is formed, right? Uh, so scientists attribute soil formation to factors such as parent material, climate, organisms, topography, and time. So as you notice here, time is a forming factor. And it takes time, a long time for soil to develop and mature. So this helps us to explain why it takes years or even decades to detect change uh, in the soil. But another thing we also need to discuss is what change are we talking about? Because for example, if you think about soil organic matter, some of the soil organic pools, they are considered passive because it might take over a hundred years for change to be noticed. And those pools are kind of important for mitigating climate change, for example. But there are also some other soil organic carbon pools that are very active and changes are observed in less than 10 years. And those pools are relative related to nutrient supply and crop productivity. So yes, it takes a long time for the soil to develop and mature. But when talking about chains, we also need to keep in mind what chains are we discussing because some properties, what I mean, what properties we are focusing on, how intensive is the soil management driving those changes? So Sal, earlier you mentioned uh, that soil provides simultaneous different functions. What are some examples of those functions? Right, so soil provides several functions and as you highlighted in the question, it's important to acknowledge that those functions occur simultaneously, right? Soil can simultaneously sustain plant and animal productivity. It can maintain or enhance water and air quality, and it can support human health and habitation, just to name a few. There are um, other equally important um, aspects of soil that are uh, part of that simultaneous function, such as cultural heritage value for soil. Soil can protect several paleontological and archaeological artifacts, which of course is important in understanding our history and uh, the history of our planet. And so it's important to acknowledge that those functions occur simultaneously because it would be very difficult to try to develop a framework that correctly balances all of those simultaneous functions occurring. If we were to determine so equality for an agronomic field, it would be difficult to then assign the um, the value or how well that soil is functioning, say, for the cultural heritage value. Or simultaneously, if there are some prairie dogs in that field, um, you, we would then have to start to weigh, well, this is providing some habitat for the prairie dogs, but it's also providing support for our corn crop. Uh, and then you'd have to insert your values as a human being as to which ones are more important to you, which which makes creating these soil quality indicators and quality scores pretty difficult. I'm sure I, that's the whole the whole challenge in of itself. <laughs> yeah. So if there was ever a day when, say, for instance, we did create some kind of a standard for classifying fields based on soil health, would you foresee that there might be shifts in land prices to correlate with soil health classification? If So for example, if uh, one field was classified as more marginal, 
would that land be worth less than a field that is uh, high quality soil? And that's a good question. I think the first aspect that we should consider is like, how will this soil health classification look like? Because uh, there is a multitude of soil health indicators as we discussed here, some of those. And there is an appropriate desire exists among the scientists and the stakeholders to integrate them into one single test score or a soil health index. So note here that I'm uh, the difference between indicator when I talk, when I mean different soil properties, make sure here I'm talking about two different things. Uh, when I say indicator, which I mean different soil properties and also index, which is the compile of multiple indicators. So many of those that I would say advocate for a soil health classification also acknowledge the challenges in creating this integrated index and the needs that must to be overcome when developing and using them. So for example, the development of a soil health index that includes all soil functions require an engagement of a broader set of stakeholders than um, index focus on crop production. So let's say a comprehensive soil health framework will need to include and allow weighting this trade-offs as it must to be a balance. Uh, we need to balance the sometimes competing functions of the soil. For example, the need to minimize water pollution by fertilizer versus the need to optimize nutrient availability for the crop. So such of those trade-offs also mean that the effect of non-crop ecosystem service such as water quality have to be valued against the crop growth effect on human health. So as this uh, holistic, let's say soil health index should in include a multi-criteria decision analysis to quantify and prioritize sustainability outcomes on soil health management. And once we have, let's say this soil health classification able to weigh these trade-offs, I believe that yes, that could drive change in land prices. And we can also think of places where the demand for uh, sustainable crops allow for a price premium. So such price premium could generate investment return for farmers to offset the investment required for land um, conversion that promotes soil uh, health. Great. You mentioned indexes, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask here. One of the in my research, I saw that one of the uh, potential assessment tools is the soil management assessment framework. Can you discuss what that is and, and how it's used? So the soil management and assessment framework or SMAT is a soil quality indexing tool developed by Susan Andrews and, and others. The goal of SMAP is to provide a site-specific interpretation of soil quality indicators. And here's the important part, based on management goals climate, certain crops, and soil type. It's important to highlight that the management considerations in SMAF really drive the results that a, a user would see. So for example, if a user defines waste recycling or environmental protection as a goal for SMAF, then a different set slash combinations of indicators uh, would be emphasized for making an interpretation of uh, scores based on user goals. And uh, SMAF involves three very basic steps. And before I get into those steps, I'd like to highlight that many other of the soil quality indexing tools um, 
follow very similar steps. SMAF is just one of these many different indexing tools, but I do think it's one of the uh, one of the oldest and more complete ones. Not to say that uh, the other ones are are bad. The other ones are great as well. But the one that I've had experience using is SMAF, and and that involves indicator selection, which uh, in in order to efficiently and effectively monitor the critical soil functions. Interpreting indicators in terms of soil function, so using expected ranges determined by soil's inherent capability, and then combining those indicator scores uh, in an integrated index of soil quality. This, of course, is optional because it would be um, it could be open to interpretation. But either way, the result is a relative measure of the soil's ability to perform those functions that have been stipulated by the user when they started using the model, uh, which is necessary for its intended use. Okay, perfect. What about soil quality scores? Are those uh, similar to the SMAF and, and how they're used to measure soil fitness? Um, right, so soil quality scores are determined by integrating the scores in indexing models like SMAF. Other, other programs um, use different ways to come at those or other programs use different methods of selecting indicators and potentially integrating those indicators, but the, but the output are soil quality scores. Um, soil quality scores, at least the ones determined by SMAF, are still used as a research tool. Uh, recent publications still report SMAF to evaluate uh, conservation and conventional management practices. Or, when, or comparing those two things. Uh, currently, there's an effort to revise and improve the indicator scoring curves by using more sophisticated meta-analytical meta techniques to update those algorithms. And for consultants and producers, SMAF may be more familiar to them than its modified form, the uh, Cornell Comprehensive Assessment of Soil Health, and that one's acronymed CASH. Uh, early versions of CASH were essentially a subset of SMAF indicators that experts in the north northeastern part of the United States felt were more relevant uh, for that geographic reason region. Um, either way, soil qualities are or soil quality scores are still used to measure soil quality, uh, specifically within the soil quality framework of ideas, and they're still uh, reported and used today. Fantastic. Well, I, I know we have more questions on the docket, but we are out of time for today, and this has been a fabulous discussion. Um, I've learned a ton talking with you guys this morning. Thank you so much, Sal and Fernanda, for joining us and sharing this great information with our audience. Thank you, happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.